the book of Revelation, there's a picture of heaven and in heaven, everybody gathers around the throne and they take off all their crowns. And the symbol for that is any authority, any position that you think you've earned in life just doesn't even compare to the majesty and the glory that's there before God. So I imagine however many presidents there will have been, however many kings there will have been on the earth, whatever position people hold, CEOs, they're going to come before the throne and they're just going to take their title. They're going to take their crown. They're going to take everything that they have and they're just going to lay it down because it, it's just ridiculous to even think that any position we could hold, any honor we could get compares to the majesty and glory of God. That's where we've come today to worship him at his throne. Even in this place, we've come here to be before that God. So I'm going to invite you to just bow your heads with me and pray for a moment as we consider the majesty and glory God of your name and father we can't see fully here what we will see one day when we're in your presence but nonetheless we we want to be a part of that heavenly throng of people who just cast off every honor that we think we deserve Lord and every position that we hold Lord anything that we think we're entitled to Father, that we may come even in this time of worship and practice what we'll do for all eternity by taking it off and casting it before your throne because you alone are worthy. And so, Lord, today we pray that you'll speak to our hearts, that you'll speak to our minds. Father, that we might catch a glimpse of your glory and that it might change us even as we go about all the things that we will face this coming week, maybe even today. Father, we come before you and we invite you to change us, to teach us. And we pray this in the powerful, majestic name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. It's great to see you this morning. Um, How many of you got up this morning and within the first, I don't know, 30 minutes, no more than an hour, you had looked in a mirror? Raise your hand. Come on. All right. Yeah, some of you who didn't raise your hand, that explains a lot. But so, so here's, here's what we do. This is sort of the, the routine and the, the ritual, right? We get up at some point, we've got to go into the bathroom, and we're going to face ourselves in the mirror. There, it's going to be right in front of us. And uh, we're going to have one of two reactions <laughs> to what we see in the mirror. Uh, one reaction is, huh. Not bad, right? Maybe, maybe for some. For others, it's going to be, oh. And what do you do? What is the purpose of looking in the mirror? The purpose of looking in the mirror is you're going to find everything about yourself that you don't like or want to change. I mean, so you might look and you might say, oh, there's a, another gray hair. Or you might look in the you know, mirror, oh, no, there's, a, you know, there's a, a zit coming up in proms this week. I, I, all kinds of different things. You're going to look in the mirror. You're going to see things. And you're going to be focused on who? Yourself. You're going to be focused entirely on yourself. And you're either going to like what you see or you're not going to like what, you're, what you see. But you're going to focus on the things you don't like Okay, follow me here. The things you don't like that you see, you're going to make some effort to try to change them so that you look better. Ultimately, it's still about you, right? So it's going to be about you whether you say, huh, you look pretty good today. Or whether you say, hmm, you need some work. It's all about you. And we look in the mirror. Now, here's, here's the thing. It's not just about our appearance and, and putting ourselves together in the morning. The reality is we live in a culture that 
that stands us in front of a mirror almost 24-7. We are constantly confronted with what are people thinking about me? What are people, how do people perceive me? And, and there's, this, there's this part of us that's constantly looking in the mirror. What about me? What do you think about me? Here's what's funny to me is that when you, when, when, that, when you come to realize that everybody else is also looking in their mirror, that they're probably not thinking about you at all. They're really focused on who? They're focused on themselves, just like you're focused on yourself. So we go through life walking with a mirror in front of us, constantly looking at ourselves. What do people think? How did they evaluate what I just said? What do they think about what I did in that meeting? Meanwhile, everybody else is walking around, and we're somewhat blinded by the fact that our face is constantly in a mirror. Now, the Bible is referred to as a mirror. There's, there, the Bible in James, the book of James, it's like a mirror that you hold up and you look at yourself. The only difference is you're not looking at a reflection of you in the mirror. You're looking at a reflection of the God in whose image you were created. And you're constantly confronted with how do I match up or where do I fall short? So we have been, for the last several weeks, uh, going through the Gospel of John and just coming up to this mirror each and every week saying, what do we see in this mirror this week and how does that, how does that inform us about how we can look not more like ourselves, but actually less like ourselves and more like the God in whose image we were created. And so today we've made our way to the end of John chapter 3. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to open to John chapter 3. Because uh, and this is a, a passage of scripture that quite honestly we often skip over because earlier in this chapter, the, that famous verse, John three sixteen, is there. It sort of draws all the attention. But the end of John chapter 3, there's a really important uh, conversation that takes place. And I think it has something really important to say to us about a subject that none of us really want to talk about, and that's humility. Humility is a tricky subject to discuss. I, I've, I've wrestled with this for the last several weeks. How do you even talk about humility? It, it might be the most difficult of all virtues because the minute you think you've got it, you just lost it. <laughs> the, the minute you say, oh yeah, I'm humble, guess what? <laughs> You're probably not. It is a very difficult. And there's something else about humility as I considered it. I realize that humility always looks attractive in other people. It always does. You think about the people you know, and you would say they are genuinely humble people. There is something very attractive about that. And yet, even though we can see how attractive it is in other people, there's something inside of us that resists humility. There's something inside of all of us that while we think it looks great in other people, we don't necessarily want to do what it takes to be humble ourselves. And, and I think the reason we resist humility is because we're afraid. We're afraid that if we don't champion ourselves, if we don't look out for ourselves, nobody else will. That if we don't remind people of our significance, of our worth, of our value, that nobody will consider our significance, our worth, and our value. And so while we find it attractive, we also resist it. I love uh, the definition that C.S. Lewis gave for humility, and I've sort of modified it for our conversation today. And, and I'd like us to look at it and actually read it together, okay? This is, this is uh, my modification of C.S. Lewis's definition of humility. I want us all to read it together. Here we go, ready? Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. 
Now, I want you to change that to myself, all right? Let's try it. Read it again and change it to myself. Ready? Humility is not thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. So humility is not about going around saying, you know what? No, I really don't deserve that. Really, I'm not worthy of that. No, really, I'm not good at that. We know people who do that. That is called false humility. That's all that is. Because that person is actually thinking of themselves as they're talking about how unworthy they are, how unattractive they are. All the things they may be saying to sort of, to sort of lessen themselves is still focused. The focus is still where? This still focuses on themselves. So that's why Lewis's definition, I think, is such a great definition. That it's not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. And here's the, here's, here's the way this manifests itself when we lack humility. It presents itself, I believe, in two significant ways. And often we put these at opposite ends of the spectrum. But, rea- but the reality is they're the same problem, the two sides of the same problem. When someone lacks humility, the, the first thing that you may see in them is that this is somebody who's arrogant. That, you know, they, they go about promoting themselves. Uh, they go about trying to make sure you know what they've done, where they've been, who they know. They might be name droppers, you know. And, and so, and I, I, you know, recently I, I, told, uh, I, told, I told Mayor Brown that I've got to stop dropping names. You know, I've got to stop doing that. I'm so bad about it. I mean, but they go around, and so the, these arrogant people who, who are constantly dropping names or, or they want you to know that they're, how smart they are, they'll, they'll, they'll slide it into the conversation. And if they're, some people are really good about it, and you leave, and you're actually impressed until you start thinking about the conversation and you realize that whole thing was about them. That clearly is somebody who lacks humility. We recognize that. We can see that. But there's another result of somebody who lacks humility that maybe you don't think about. And that's the person who is extremely self-conscious and insecure. And they are constantly saying, oh, I don't think I can do that. I'm not sure. I'm, I'm not, oh, I'm not pretty enough. I'm not good enough. And they're constantly worried about their own self-image and their own worth. And, and here's, here's what is so ironic. They have the same problem as the arrogant person. Exactly the same problem. It's two sides of the same coin, and what is missing in both of their lives is humility. And so I want to take some time this morning to talk about humility, and I want to talk about it because I realize as you read the Bible, it is one of the virtues that God seems to hold in really high esteem. He uses people throughout the Bible who are humble people. If you go back and you read the story of Moses, probably one of the most famous characters in all the Bible, Moses was an extremely humble leader. Uh, the Bible actually says that he was the most humble man who ever lived. And some people say, well, how, he wrote that about himself. How can he have it? I don't, I don't, I actually think Joshua wrote that about him after his, after his death. But he, that he was very, very humble. And then you come to the New Testament and, and you read in 1 Peter, where the apostle Peter wrote that God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. And, and you see, even in Jesus the greatest example of humility that we know. And we're told by Paul in Philippians that we should be like that. We should have the same attitude as Christ Jesus who humbled himself. 
And so if God thinks it's that important that that would be one of the defining characteristics of Jesus, it's pretty important for us to examine it and consider. And I want us to look at it today through the life of a character in the Bible who Jesus paid the highest compliment. Jesus said of this guy, there's nobody living who is greater than this man. Now, if you're going to get a compliment like that from Jesus, you might have a problem with humility because that's going to make you feel pretty good about yourself. But this guy didn't have that. Does anybody know who I'm talking about? Who was it? John the Baptist. Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, was, was, uh, got this compliment from Jesus that, hey, this is the, of all the people ever born, there's nobody greater than John. And you think, why did Jesus give him this compliment? One of the reasons I think John deserved this compliment was because of the influence and notoriety to which John had risen, and he had done it in such a humble and unassuming way, out in the desert, he he wasn't dressed fancy, he didn't eat the right diet, he didn't follow all the social rules, but he was proclaiming the word of the Lord, and that was attractive. So people started finding John, and at the height of his notoriety, at the time when the religious establishment was coming, and trying to figure out, hey, this could be the Messiah. Hey, how can we capitalize on his popularity for our purposes? Right at the moment where where he could have taken off, John steps out of the spotlight and turns the attention to Jesus. He says, hey, I want you to know, I am not all that, but there's somebody coming after me who I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. And his his name is Jesus. And so I, we, we met John earlier in our study of the Gospel of John, and uh, we saw the encounter that Jesus had with him. And, and now we're going to pick back up and we're going to see a little bit more about John. And I want us to pay special attention today about the humility, because John gives us a formula. He gives us a formula that I believe can make a difference in your life this week. It can make a difference in your relationships today. This is a powerful, powerful verse and a powerful, powerful truth that John offers us. And I really, my biggest prayer coming in today has been that you would hear this simple formula, the simple verse that John's going to say, the simple thing that John's going to say, and that you would take it from here and you would spend at least one week trying to apply it across your life. And at the end of the week, to see the difference that this one simple truth may have in your life. So if you have a Bible, hopefully you've had time to find John chapter 3. I'm going to begin reading in verse 22. So after this, now after this basically means Jesus had just finished up his conversation with a Pharisee named Nicodemus who had come to him at night asking him about the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus has just finished up that conversation. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside And he remained there with them and was baptizing. Now, we're going to find out at the beginning of chapter 4 that, in fact, Jesus wasn't baptizing anybody, but his disciples did all the baptizing. So Jesus and his posse have gone back into the Judean countryside, and they start baptizing because they're beginning to draw a pretty big crowd. John was also baptizing. This is Jesus' cousin, John. He was also baptizing at Anon near Salim. Because water was plentiful there. Now, remember, this is an arid region. It's a desert region. There's not a lot of water. So if you're going to baptize people, there are only a few places where you can go to do it. So Jesus and his disciples make their way back to the very place where John and his disciples had had been baptizing people. And people were coming and being baptized. And then John, the gospel writer, gives us this little aside, which we're going to come back to in just a minute because it's really important. For John had not yet been put in prison. So we know what's coming. 
John is going to be in prison. But this happened before John was put in prison. Uh, Verse 25. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. Now we don't know what the argument was about. But I, I guess that it could have been something like this. See, baptism was not a new, unique ritual to John. The Jews had practiced water purification for hundreds of years. It was part of their ritual and routine. They went through this purification ritual of washing their hands, washing their body as just sort of a symbol of being prepared to come into God's presence. John had taken that symbol, that purification ritual, and he had taken it to the extreme because he started telling people, listen, not just your hands are dirty. Man, you are dirty everywhere. We're going to dip you under the water, all of you, all the way down and shake you a little bit because you've got some real problems and you need to be purified. And this is a symbol of your repentance. It's a symbol of a desire to purify your life, to change your life. And so John's baptism was a symbol of repentance. But for the Jews, they really believed that the way people's sins were cleansed was through a blood sacrifice. So my guess is that the controversy was about whether or not the water purification was enough to purify sins or whether there had to be a blood sacrifice. So whatever it was, they were having this theological argument. And then this happened. And then they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you witnessed, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. In other words, my guess is that once the Jews realized they weren't going to win the theological argument with John, they pointed out, well, John, you think you're so good. Why is everybody leaving you and going over to that other guy that you talked about the last time we were here? Look, he's got a bigger crowd than you. He's stealing all your, he's stepping in the spotlight. He's taking all your prestige. John, if you're so smart and you're so good and you're so important, why are your, why is your attendance down, John? Why aren't there as many people coming to see you, John, if you're all that? There must not be something right because otherwise people wouldn't be leaving you and going and following Jesus. Actually, John had pointed Jesus out and two, at least two of John's own disciples left him and began to follow Jesus. One is the person who's writing this gospel for us. John the Apostle was originally one of John the Baptist's disciples and left him. Another was Andrew. They just said, hey, you know, if, if he's the Messiah, John, it's been real nice, but we'll see you later. We're going with Jesus. And that was happening By the droves, people were leaving, and so they pointed it out. And here's John's answer. Listen to what he said in verse 27. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Now, (laughs) this verse brought several things to mind for me. In in 1 John, he said, you know, every good and perfect gift comes from the Father. Job, if you remember the story of Job, Job said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. That the only thing I have anyway, John the Baptist is saying, the only thing I've got is what God gives me. And it's, it's up to him to decide what to give and what to take. And that's the first thing he says. And then he says this in verse uh, 28. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. Guys, didn't you listen to anything I said? This is how it's supposed to be. I'm not the Messiah. And then he gives this illustration in verse 29. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, or the best man, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. What's John saying? He said, guys, what would it be like if you went to a wedding? And 
the, the, the best man or the matron of honor decided that they wanted to be the center of all the pictures when the wedding photographer came. You know, hey, bride and groom, why don't you just step aside? Let us stand in the middle here because we're the, we're the, I'm the best man. I'm the best man. And John's saying, do you see how ridiculous that is? My joy doesn't come because I am lifted up. My joy comes because the bridegroom that I have come to point attention to is getting the attention. Do you see the level of humility and the perspective that John brings to this subject? That, that's pretty remarkable. And, and, and before we get to the next verse, which is the formula that I think John applies, I, I, want, us to, I, want, us to take a, I want us to deviate for just a minute and go back to what John said about, uh, about John the Baptist's imprisonment. Remember, he said this was before he had been thrown in prison. And at the end of verse 29, he said, listen, my joy is now, and that last word is complete. This is actually the last public, uh, public demonstration of the ministry of John that we have recorded. And he ends it by saying, I'm done here. My ministry is complete. What happened shortly after this is that John was arrested and the reason John was arrested is because he wasn't really making a lot of friends with the political establishment. If you remember the Christmas story, there was an evil king named Herod. Remember, Herod is the one who went and had all the baby boys under two killed because he was trying to make sure Jesus was eradicated. Well, Herod had died, and Herod had three sons. Uh, and his three sons uh, were Herod Antipas, Herod Archelaus, and Herod Philip. And he left the kingdom to two of his sons. To Herod Archelaus, he left the south of Palestine. And to Herod Antipas, he left Galilee, which is where Jesus was from. And then his third son, I don't know what he did to make Herod mad, but Herod Philip didn't get anything. So Herod Philip was left out. But Herod Philip had gotten married, and he was married to a woman who took the name Herodias. And she was something. Uh, Herodias uh, and, and Herod Philip had a child, had a daughter named Salome. But at some point, um, Herod Antipas... Uh, Philip's brother, Herod Antipas, decided, you know what, I think Herodias looks pretty good. And Herodias said, yeah, well, I think the fact that you're a king looks pretty good. And I want to be called queen. So I'm going to leave Philip. And he, she divorced Philip, and she married Antipas. And it was a scandal. I mean, it was, I mean, people talked about it. The Jews were absolutely horrified that this person who was the king of their of their basically of their people, even though they themselves weren't Jewish, they were put in place by the Romans, had divorced somebody and left and married. So John went about preaching this. And like, look, this is terrible. This is wrong. This should not be happening. And, and people are like, John, you really shouldn't be saying this. I mean, they just, you know, not. But John just kept preaching it. Well, it made, it made the, the, the royal couple really mad. So eventually they had him arrested. And as he was waiting to be executed, he sends a message to Jesus, and he asks him a question. Now, you've got to remember, John has just given up everything, and he's given it up for Jesus, his cousin. He sent all his followers. Nobody is now defending John the Baptist because anybody who would have defended him has been sent away. His crowd had diminished and diminished and diminished and diminished until John's all by himself, and now John is all by himself in a prison. Nobody's advocating for him. Nobody's coming forth to save him. And here's the message. He sends, he gets his disciples. He says, listen, guys, the few of you who are left, I need you to go to Jesus. And I need you to ask him this question. Are you the one or should we be looking for another? Now, think about that for just a minute. 
I, I appreciate so much that the, the Gospel of Luke, and if you want to read that, you can find it Luke chapter 7, verse 18 and following. You can read the story. But I appreciate that it's included so much because it makes me feel better about the reality that when we face trials, when we face difficulties, when we face tough circumstances, doesn't it cause us to question everything? It does. And it will even cause you to question your faith. It can even cause you to question God and God's faithfulness to you. And John was human like the rest of us. John could not see past his own pain. He couldn't see past the prison bars that he was held in. And do you know what happens when we're in pain? Do you know what happens when when the pain gets really bad? Your focus and attention is entirely on you. That's where it is. That's what pain does, doesn't it? Your body is actually, if you're talking about physical pain, your body is designed to do that because your body wants you to know something is wrong and you need to give it attention. Pain draws our attention back into ourself, but it's not just physical pain. It's emotional pain. It's relational pain as well. So any of you who've ever gone through a difficult time in a relationship, uh, whether that's with a spouse, whether that's with a parent, a child, whatever it is, where does the attention come? It draws all the attention right back into yourself. And we become self-centered. And, and maybe you would even say, well, it's justifiable. And, and perhaps it is. And John was no different than that. He was, his attention was drawn right back to himself. And he needed another perspective. So what did he do? He sent his disciples to say, ask Jesus, are you the one or should we be looking for another? So the disciples, John's disciples come to Jesus. And I can imagine it was an awkward conversation. Um, Jesus, we really hate to ask this, but, you know, here's the question. Are you the one or should we be looking for another? It's not us asking John wants to know. <laughs> and so jo- Jesus' response, I love his response. And, and you can find it. It's, it's in Luke, uh, Luke chapter 7, verse 22, 23. Here's what Jesus said to tell the disciples. Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers, and, or, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor hear, have, have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. John, I know you're in prison, buddy, and I know you're in a lot of pain, but lift up your eyes and look past yourself for just a minute and see what's going on around you. Listen, this is not a popular message I'm getting ready to tell you, but I'm going to tell you something. Your pain and your suffering is not all about you. It's not all about you. And the danger is when you are hurting is that you draw so into yourself that you forget to lift up your eyes, look past the prison bars of your pain, and see the bigger thing that God may be doing all around you. Your pain is not about you. Your suffering is not about you. Now, I didn't say that perhaps you didn't bring it on yourself because we've all done that, haven't we? That's not what I said. I ultimately said that we have to believe that God has a bigger plan. God has a bigger purpose beyond just what's going on with me. It is not all about me. God's bigger than that. And Jesus reminds John, John, look around and see what's happening. Look at all these great things that are happening Humility requires that I stop evaluating God based on my current circumstances. That's what happens. We, we, the more we focus inward on ourselves, the more we begin to evaluate God based on our 
circumstances based on our temporary conditions. But my circumstances, your current circumstances, are not the best way to indicate how God feels about you. God does not demonstrate his love for you in your suffering. He demonstrates his love for you and your worth in the suffering of his son, Jesus Christ. That's where God established your worth and your value to him. So if every time you're hurting and if every time you face a difficult circumstance, the first thing you do is say, God, I'm not sure if you love me. You've missed the point and you've allowed your, you've allowed your circumstances to define what you believe about God. God says, look, I've established my love for you and demonstrated it in the suffering of my son. My love for you is not defined by your suffering. It's defined by my own suffering. And then I want to come back to John chapter 3 because this is the verse. This is, the, this is the, what he says. Listen to what John says in John chapter 3 verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. Will you read it with me? He must increase. But I must decrease. One more time. He must decrease. Actually, there's a, simple, there's a simple formula that I think will make it stick, and you can memorize this verse. He must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase, but I must decrease. Let me, let me, let me just challenge you. What would it look like? What would it look like if you applied this simple formula, John's own formula, to every area of your life? What would it look like if you, if you applied it to the challenging circumstance that you're facing this week? Maybe it's a health situation. Maybe it's a situation in your job. But what if you looked at your circumstances right now and in the face of insurmountable challenges, you said, he must increase and I must decrease. What if you said to yourself, you know what? I don't know what this challenge is about. I don't know why I was laid off from my job. I don't know why I'm filing bankruptcy. I don't know why my spouse is about ready to walk out and leave me. I don't know why my kids are struggling like they're struggling. But whatever it is, he must increase and I must decrease. What would it look like? What would it look like in your relationships? If, if in that very difficult relationship... And you're constantly evaluating yourself. What must I do? How can I fix this? What, how can, what if instead of figuring out what you needed to do, what if in the midst of that relationship you said, he must increase and I must decrease? And what if you applied some simple verses that I think point to this? Philippians chapter 2 verse 3 says this, that we're to consider others better than ourselves. Ephesians 5.21 says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And you think, but you don't know my spouse. You don't know what my wife is like. You don't know what my husband's like. I didn't ask you. I don't, I don't need to know what your spouse is like because I know what Jesus is like. And what Ephesians 5.21 says is you're not submitting to that person out of reverence for them. You're submitting to that person out of reverence for Jesus Christ. That's why you can look at somebody who is not worth your surrender or submission. And you can say, I'm not doing this because you're worth it. I'm doing it because Jesus has commanded it and he's worth it. So I'm submitting out of reverence for Christ. I become less and he becomes more. I'm telling you, it would change everything if you applied this simple little formula. So the challenge this week is for you to do that. It's for you to look at every circumstance, every relationship this week and apply the formula. 
He must increase and I must decrease. And at the end of the week, and these questions are printed on the back of your bulletin if you need to be reminded to hold on to this. Here, at the end of the week, here's what I want you to ask yourself. How did this impact my relationships? How did it impact my relationships? When was this the hardest for me? That's an important question because it will point out to you where you lack humility. When was this the hardest for me? Was it hardest for you at work? Was it hardest for you with your kids? Was it hardest for you uh, with your spouse? When and where was it the most difficult to apply this principle, this formula of he must increase and I must decrease? By the end of the week, were you more or less joyful? By the end of the week, did you have more or less peace? I don't know. But come on, isn't this true? You've tried everything else anyway. I mean, you're paying hundreds of dollars for a counselor. I mean, you, you, you've got all kinds of prescriptions you're taking trying to chill out. I mean, you, you've tried everything else anyway. What would it hurt? What would it hurt for you to take one week and just try it? And just see what would happen and what could change. If truly in your heart, Lord, you must increase and I must decrease. Philippians chapter 2 Verse 5 and following says, We are to have the mind in us that was in Christ Jesus, who, although he was God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. In other words, if anybody had a right to say, Hey, I'm a big deal, I'm important, it was Jesus, because he was God. You don't get any better than that. He said, But, but he, though he was God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing taking on the form of a servant, being made in human likeness, and he became obedient to death, even death on the cross. And the invitation and the command is for us to be like him. He must increase, and I must decrease. Will you bow your heads and pray with me? With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I just want to invite you to, uh, just in way of confession right now, if, if you, even as we were talking, if the Lord already brought a circumstance, a relationship to mind where you know you need to apply this formula, would you just raise a finger, something, so that you could say, yeah, yeah, that's a lot of us. Okay. I, I want to pray. I want you to know I'm going to pray this week. As I try to apply this myself, I'm going to be praying for you. And for some of you, the reality is, until you submit yourself to Christ, you'll never be able to submit yourself to other people. And you will constantly be standing in front of that mirror pointing out all the things about yourself that you don't like. And my prayer is that Jesus Christ will set you free from the prison of your own introspection. And instead of looking at yourself, that you'll see the image of Jesus and that you will become more and more like him. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Uh, that's like a mirror that is quite often difficult to look into because we see all the ways that we don't line up but, Father, we're called to the likeness of Jesus, even in terms of our humility. And, Father, I pray that this very elusive virtue that seems to be so important to you and throughout the pages of the Bible will be something that, Father, we wouldn't even be aware of, but ultimately it would define us as people. It would define us as a church. Father, that we might decrease and that you might increase. Lord, in, in the circumstances and situations that we will all face this week, I just pray that that simple verse, John 3.30, 30, 
would be so much at the front of our thoughts that at any moment where we begin to assert ourselves and our rights, it might just immediately come to our mind and that we might step back and trust you. We pray this in the powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.